The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, very warm welcome to this Thursday edition of Squawkbox. Already a stunningly busy day. Let's give you some headlines. Stocks across Asia declining after the S&P logs its worst day in a month following a report the US and China may not ink a phase one trade deal this year. But Apple getting a pass. The president, Mr. Trump, suggesting the tech giant could get exempted from tariffs on Chinese imports as he joins the CEO, Tim Cook, for a factory tour in Texas. Well, then the nice part here is not to worry about tariffs. When you build in the United States, you don't have to worry about tariffs. Sort of uh, helps people make a decision to come in, but he's a very special person as far as uh, this country is concerned because of the great uh, job potential and the great job that uh, he's done. The French finance minister Bruno Le Maire telling our very own Karen that you can't build growth in Europe amid a trade war between the world's superpowers, but says there may be a limited resolution soon. I don't think that uh, this war will be sold as a whole in the near future. Maybe there might be a a slight agreement, a limited agreement between the United States and China, and I hope it will be the case. Minutes from the Federal Reserve's October meeting confirm a central bank on hold as officials see little need for further rate cuts. A look inside the little blue box shares in Tiffany jump in after-hours trade on reports Louis Vuitton owner LVMH has upped its bid for the U.S. jeweler given access to its books. Spending a little bit of time looking back at uh, 1811. It's 2019, isn't it? 1811 was when Friedrich Karl Krupp uh, first started the beginnings of what became the titan that was Thyssen Krupp. What a sorry story it has become, though, for corporate Germany, despite a mere blip from its recent lows. This is the stock which has been woeful. The five-year performance, as you can see there, down the best part of 30%. During the same period, the DAX has rallied around about 40%, so around about a 70% underperformance. We've got another new CEO, Guido Kerkhoff, has stepped down. Martina Merz is in charge of the current strategy, and it involves, it looks to me, like selling off some of the family silver, the lifts business, which remains pretty positive. They're saying the internal preparations for the IPO of that business, the elevator business, to be completed by the year end. But, but... That is the only mildly positive news I can see in this, including this. It will not achieve medium-term targets set for 2021 as current weak economy will continue to weigh on margins. So straight away, as you would expect from a new incoming CEO, Martina Merz, taking over from Guido Kerkhoff, uh, you have got what is the habitual throwing of the kitchen sink out there. I Let's chuck away uh, some of the previous targets as well. Um, but... It also adds it expects adjusted EBIT to remain stable in 2019-2020 uh, versus 2018-19 net loss and negative free cash flow before M&A to widen. Shall I just uh, reiterate that? So you've already lost in my first flash. You've lost the guidance. Now you've got a net loss and negative free cash flow before M&A 
is to widen as well. Oh, yeah, did I tell you they're scrapping the dividend as well? No, not paying a dividend for 2018, 2019. Net loss, 304 million euros versus a year earlier of 62 million euros. As I say, cash flow before M&A, negative 1.14 billion. Um, the overall order intake was up 1.1% in 2018-2019 there was um yeah nearly half the headquarters staff to uh is going to be happening they're halving the headquarters staff to about 430 from 800 over the next 12 months now look, the market may say look this company is taking material action but i want to see where the growth of this company is going forward and at the moment Frau Merz, I can't see it. Good morning to Kara. How are you? You're living the dream in Germany. Nice to see you. I'm living the dream in Germany and unfortunately no good news from Germany this morning. Obviously, this is our GE story in a way. This is the fall from grace for one of the biggest industrial behemoths that we've had. I mean, as you've pointed out, they've got such a long history and so many, so many profit warnings of the last couple of years and months. And as you say, a change in management. Now we've got the activist investor who's come in, CBN, they now hold uh, 18%, I believe. So it's very good that outside pressure is coming in to make this company more profitable. And, 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 they're, and they're working on their profitability. I think they're doing all the right things. But as we know, with some of these big conglomerates, it really just takes time. And if the market or if the market environment is working against it, it's going to be very tough to do that very quickly. Um, I should also say uh, the loss of the dividend, probably no surprise. Sure. First time in, in six years. They also cut 640 jobs in the auto plant business. Um, I believe that was announced yesterday. Oh. I have a big problem with yeah. this um, strategy, though, and I don't see why you sell the good bits and concentrate on the rubbish bits or the bits that aren't profitable. For instance, I mean, you, you sell mentioned- whatever fetches most, right? No, I disagree. I think you keep the, the you you pair down to what's the best part of your business. Surely, if the elevator business is the best part of your business, is it? Hang- I haven't looked at the market. Strong interest. Know. Strong interest from strategic and financial investors regarding the elevator division. You wouldn't get strong. Mm-hmm. We, we, we're talking about IPOs a little bit later yeah. on as well. And some failed IPOs, some, uh, should we say, opaque IPOs and yeah. some underperforming IPOs as well. You don't sell off a division which gets huge interest if that's the one that you can grow. Look at this, for instance. But it's look, some look, of the parts. It's, it's always the sum of the parts. Equation, is it, it, though? Look at the rest of the parts. Industrial solutions, adjusted EBIT loss widens to 170 million euros versus 127 euros. Shall I have a look at another division? Let's have another division. Marine systems. Are they keeping this one? Uh, 1 million euro E. Really? Adjusted EBIT is 1 million euros versus a loss of 128 million euros. It doesn't sound like like it's going great guns. Here we go. Material sciences, their services, they're keeping this one down 66% adjusted EBIT. I don't understand the industrial strategy of selling the bits that you think could be profitable going forward, that there is a lot of appetite out there for, and hanging on to divisions, which, let's face it, are struggling. You mentioned GE. It's a very good case in point. Yeah, you're actually right. I'm just looking at the operated profit uh, per sector uh, or per unit. Elevator technology is by far the most profitable. And then comes Steel Europe. Um, followed by components, technology, material services. So, yeah, why why sell the crown jewels? I take my point back. Oh, well, look, hey, I mean, it's a valid, valid point. There may be an argument on the other side. But I can go around in circles on this one. But the, the, how the shareholders react to this one, that remains to be seen. This is a stock I've already mentioned. It's been absolutely pummeled. And what is very interesting, it's had a tiny, tiny rally since we saw uh, Herr Kerkhoff resigning, Frau Mertz taking over as well. I just wonder if the once the elevator mm. business is gone, you've, you've taken your headcount down, what businesses are you left with as well? And, yeah. and I think GE is, is, and, and is a wonderful case in point. Mm. This, isn't, this is very different from, let's say, the Phillips story. Yeah. Uh, and you know Eindhoven, you've yeah. driven through there a few times. 
Eindhoven used to be Philips City as yeah. well. And actually, there are parts of Eindhoven that are quite spooky. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're yeah, quite yeah, spooky yeah. because they're like, you can see where all this industrial process yeah. was be. Philips, Eindhoven. But now Philips has said, no, we are going to, I'm not saying they're showing the growth mm. yet. I'm not saying Franz van Houten hasn't got a lot of massive work to do, but he bought aggressively mm. in diagnostics and certain Healthcare, areas and yeah. said, this is what we're going to be, a very strong identity, what he sees a 21st century business. I want to know what ThyssenKrupp is going to have as its core mm -hmm. growth strategy going forward, rather than just scything off because you've got an activist on board. I can tell you ThyssenKrupp does not have healthcare, as far as I know. Not yeah. that I saw it. Not, don't get me wrong, healthcare's tough. <laughs> it's really tough. Ask GE, ask, mm -hmm. ask Philips, you know. But uh, anyway, very nice to see you. Nice we can start off on a, on a home turf story for you straight away. Uh, let's move on. No deal this year. Hang on. Hang on. Weren't what? we optimistic 24 hours ago? I lost track this week. How many days old is this week? Four days. So we've had two days of pessimism, probably two days of positivity. Anyway, no deal this week. That's my headline now. Big barriers to a phase one trade agreement could push negotiations into 2020. What else is going on 2020? Oh, yeah, there's a presidential election. That's interesting, isn't it? Putting those two stories together. Anyway, this is according to Reuters sources. Talks have reportedly stumbled over Beijing's demand to roll back tariffs and Washington's desire to address intellectual property rights. The president, Mr. Trump, blamed China, as you'd expect, for the lack of progress during a tour of a facility that assembles Apple computers in Texas. Hang on a second before we run the bite. Isn't it interesting where he's touring? What he's talking about is exemptions. Where does Apple make its product? Not assemble them. Where does Apple make its stuff? Have a look at those tiny print on the back of your handset. If you've got one to hand, I may or may not have one. And look at the tiny print on the back. Assembled in where? Made in where? Anyway, let's listen to the president. So I can tell you this. China would much rather make a trade deal than I would. Then why haven't they? Uh, because I haven't wanted to do it yet. Then why haven't because I don't think they're stepping up to the level that I want. Do you wear glasses? I don't. Maybe I should. Can you read that <laughs> on the back there? I'm this is an see, iPhone. We do have other phones available. The I'm first see. line under where it says iPhone. Oh, this is very small. Oh, it's uh, tiny. Uh, Come on, you can Assembled do it. in China. Designed by Apple in California. Yeah. So there you go. That's what I thought. Um, That's what I thought. And he's giving them exemptions? Well, let me read this next line. Yeah. President Trump also suggested that the White House could exempt Apple from tariffs on Chinese imports. We're looking at that, and you know, the problem we have is you have Samsung, it's a great company, but it's a competitor of Apple, and it's not fair if, because we have a trade deal with Korea. We made a great trade deal with South Korea, but we have to treat Apple on a somewhat similar basis as we treat Samsung. And those exempt Apple. Oh, is it me? Why would you exempt Apple? Caro, any thoughts? Like Nothing to do, what do they do? They sell massive amounts of consumer-related products to Americans. Maybe they don't want those margins going on to those Americans in what will be an election year. And it says Carolyn here, is it me? Let, let, let me do this. Okay then. Um, these comments came as the president visited an Apple factory with CEO Tim Cook in Austin, where the two exhibited their warm relationship. The tour follows a number of meetings between the two over the last few months. And efforts, while this getting more and more complicated, to complete a trade deal have become even trickier by a Hong Kong rights bill that has now passed both chambers of Congress. China has said it condemns and quote, firmly opposes the legislation. It comes with uh, protesters still barricaded inside a Hong Kong university after five days 
of a police siege. Now it's your turn, Steve. Uh, thank you very much indeed for that. Well, let's take a look at a few of the factors that affected U.S. markets yesterday. We were all teed up for the FOMC minutes, and we'll speak to our guest about this in a few moments' time. Um, I think you just can't get far beyond well calibrated, can you? These were the comments about the U.S. economy. But actually, it's going to be a higher benchmark, as we expected, coming into this for further rate cuts in the US as well. I think, despite my headline, I think the markets behave relatively well. You've got to remember where we've come from. Don't just look at the recent couple of days. Basically, we're around about a percentage point away at most on the Dow from record levels. Yeah. So let's remember we've come up a long way on hopes of a trade deal, amongst other things, but mostly on hopes of a trade deal. And we've only come off a couple of hundred points. So just 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 temper it when you start saying big sell off on the back of declines about uh, trade. And here we are, S&P down 0.4 of 1%. The Nasdaq did lose a little bit of ground, but of course, higher beta has been to the upside as well. Would you like a look at the Treasury market? Let's do that and take a look at some of these yields here. 1.735 is where the 10 years trading, um, your 30 year paper, mighty 2.2% there. Dollar crosses look like this. So the yuan, this is the key pair, 7.04. You, uh, yuan just losing a tiny bit of ground versus the greenback there as well. Uh, Euro dollar trading 1.1075. And cable, again, I'll make the same point I've made for about two years. The pound gravitates towards 130. That's where it stays until it thinks it knows where Brexit are going. If it thinks it's getting a resolution, it moves higher. If it thinks we're having a problem, it goes down. That is the maths of it over the last two years, say. And of course, we've got this general election in the UK. That's in your diary for December 12th, I'm sure. Would you like a look at the oil price? Because what is interesting, you will note that we had a blip up yesterday. That was on the back of the EIA data. So interesting, despite the trade hopes came down, you normally expect oil to go down on the back of that. Actually, oil went up because actually there was an inventory drawer at Cushing that was larger than many had expected. Cushing, Oklahoma, one of the key refining points in the United States. And overall, um, the inventory story was slightly more bullish. That's why energy rose yesterday. That's why energy stocks rose and acted as a counterweight to the rest of the market. Let's have a look at the Asian indices now. So we are down. We are down unambiguously. But again, I would say these are measured declines. 1.6%, a little bit bigger, of course, on the Hang Sang. There is concern, of course, as Carolyn mentioned in her read uh, about the, uh, the legislation coming out of the US. And the key point about that legislation is the special status that Hong Kong has. And if the Congress were to get together and the House and the Senate can put this through uh, and present it to the president. Very interested to see whether he'll sign it, of course. But if they can put this through as well, uh, an annual review of the special states of Hong Kong could well be part of it. That is very interesting. Caro. Let's talk to Christian Keller, head of economics research at Barclays, about everything that happened and uh, materialized over the last 24 hours. There was so much optimism around uh, the U.S. trade deal with China, the phase one deal over the last couple of weeks or so. It simply didn't happen yet. Now it seems like it may not happen at all this year. Does this shift the, the economic narrative for the world economy? I think the market anticipated a lot regarding the phase one deal. I think we always knew that it gets to the final stage, what they call it. It comes to the president deciding. I think there was always uh, the realization that then would become very, very tricky because, you know, he takes sometimes quite abrupt decisions. Uh, we still remain optimistic. We think there is a sufficient motivation on both sides. Um, we actually see some tendencies of the world economy improving, possibly even without a deal before the year end. But obviously, you know, when it comes to sentiment, 
you know, signing of a deal would be very important. And all the asset classes that we're looking at these days, they're all so sentiment and headline driven. They're looking at every tweet and every comment from Trump and uh, the Chinese counterparts. How difficult is it to disentangle the two? The sentiment, the headline-driven nature of what these talks are all about, and then the economic picture, which actually is looking like we're going to be avoiding a recession in the U.S. at least. We're avoiding a recession, as I said, and people jump on the very little data that shows us that we're stabilizing global manufacturing, things are turning around. So market obviously doesn't want to miss that point. And, and suddenly we have a picture where by 2020 could see an uplift in growth. And as I said, market anticipate that. Um, we do think there are some reasons to believe that that happens even without a trade deal. How could that happen? We see, I think there was a global cycle in place where we saw, you know, global manufacturing, industrial production started to turn sour already uh, in the beginning of 2018. If you look at it, the peak was in 17, end of 17. And some of these dynamics were not directly related to trade. Mm. Now, the trade uncertainty made it much worse. Sure. But some of the things have now panned out, inventories, you see export orders coming up. So there's some hope that this could work even without necessarily trade deal. As you're sure you're aware, I'm, I'm incredibly argumentative. So may I argue just gently with you about one thing you said earlier on? And, and that is, you said you thought it was always going to be quite hard to get to a phase one deal as well. I thought that was the easy bit. Getting to the base camp is always the easy bit, really. Because I only knew the phrase phase one in the last few months. I've never heard the phrase yep. phase one before. It's like re- reprofiling of your debt. I, oh, we suddenly started all working out a few years ago what that meant as well. This was only brought in, phase, comprehensive phase one. Let's go for the whole thing. Comprehensive phase one was only brought in because they thought, crikey, we're not getting very far on getting a whole deal. So they brought in phase one so they could give a win to exactly. the president. So they exactly. could give a win to Xi Jinping as well. This is very worrisome that they can't even get to first base. Well, first of all, it is true that, you know, the escalation went much further than people thought. Six months ago, we thought we would never be here with the threat of terrorists in September that were delayed with still the looming threat of terrorists in, in December. And now phase one was, a, you know, was coined by the U.S. administration, I believe. And it, it was always the idea that you just prevent further escalations. And suddenly markets were already happy with that. Mm. Now, I think there's very little belief that you ever get really to a real resolution, in particular when it comes to tech, security and these type of issues. Sure. But phase one was already enough, giving the feeling that you don't further escalate, dampening a bit that uncertainty. And, you know, I still believe there's a good chance we get there. But it was always clear, as I said, once the president gets involved, he's in a political gamble now as well as the, sure. as the election is coming up. And, you know, he cannot be seen to give it away too yeah, easily. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an economist which knows everything. And I'm speaking to, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, apparently, anyway, they've never been wrong anyway. Um, they're, they're saying next year he can't afford to be seen to be weak uh, because the Democrats will certainly not um, uh, miss an opportunity to go after the president. Here's something. Are you, I'm going to ask you a really rude question. I have one German here. Are you a German, sir? I am, yes. You're outnumbered. Uh, no, no, no. I have great understanding of the German psychology when it comes to negative rates. You're not well. asking me more margins on Tussen Krupp. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. We've done that one. There's many, many good companies out there in Germany. I'm very aware of that. But, but because, because, dare I say, I feel myself very Germanic when it comes to this attitude to negative rates as well. Can Frau Merkel. Can other central bankers actually come to the rescue for all these things? You know, because there is a Germanic school of thought, if I may say so, that they can't, that they've gone as far as they can on negative rates. I think on negative rates, uh, there's a clear understanding that we're getting very close to the effective low bound. You know, it's, not, it's not even though the zero bound. We know that. You know that over at Barclays. Do they know that? 
Well, I think the ECB still believes probably, if you would ask them, that there is some room. And, uh, you know, you could argue that with a tiering system, which seemed to have worked quite well. If you look at recently, there seemed to, you know, there was some kind of cross-border liquidity where there seems to be, you know, a, a breakup of that, you know, fragmented liquidity within the, within the European euro area market. Sure. You know, because, you know, with the tiering now, there are some opportunities for others, you know, to shift liquidity from German banks, Italian banks, etc. How well that will work remains to be seen. <laughs> how, do our, how do our German but, financial institutions feel about that, sir? But, you look, in general, I do believe that monetary policy is close to its end. Now, you mentioned Ms. Merkel. Ms. Merkel doesn't stand for monetary policy. She stands for possibly fiscal policy. So Does I think she stand a, for much these days? She's uh, a bit of a lame duck. Oh, I, 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 not much. I, I think at the moment there is not much. But, yeah. you know, the potential, if you look at, at German dynamics and debt and fiscal, there's still a lot they could do. Now, of course, they were encouraged by the recent data. Yeah. They slipped, you know, they skipped the recession. So I don't think that motivates them to do much. So much more to discuss with you, but we've got to leave it there, I'm afraid. Would you come back and talk to us again about this? Because we haven't talked about the fiscal constraints across the... I mean, if, if it was all one happy economy, then we wouldn't have a fiscal problem. But unfortunately, dare I say it, economies number two, three, and others already getting a rap on the knuckles from Brussels. But lovely to see you today, sir. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You. And we won't ask you any questions about Artis and Krupp. Christian Keller, who is head of economics research over at Barclays. Right, the mayor, he might have a, a rap on the knuckles coming up. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the French finance minister. And he told CNBC there are no winners in a trade war. We hear exclusively from him after this short break. Don't go away. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Uh, French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire has downplayed the prospect of a complete end to the US-China trade war, but speaking to CNBC, he said he hopes a limited agreement could be reached. Well, Karen conducted that exclusive interview with Le Maire from Paris, who must be under a little bit of pressure himself. Uh, can't blame the Americans for everything that's going on in France, Karen. Well, don't forget the economy here, though, is outpacing Germany and some strange anomalies, which I think you'll find amusing. Investment actually drove the economy here, while consumption supported the German economy and managed to help it skirt recessions. So kind of strange when we talk about investment here in France and consumption in Germany. But the backdrop, I think, for both countries and for other European countries has been a weak one because of the trade war, which explains why there's been so much focus even right here in Paris on what is transpiring between the US and Chinese negotiators. Now, at a very high level conversation, of course, Bruno Le Maire is taking uh, close notice because there may be a ramification for any European tariffs at some point as well. So I asked him on stage at Women's Forum whether he had any intel about the trade war and when it would be resolved. Take a listen. I don't think that um, this war will be solved as a whole in the near future. Maybe there might be a, a slight agreement, a limited agreement between the United States and China, and I hope it will be the case. I'm uh, discussing very often with my American counterpart about that, 
and I hope that there will be um, trade agreement, even if it is a limited one between Washington and Beijing, for the sake of avoiding a trade war, which would benefit to nobody, because my deep conviction from the very beginning is that a trade war is clearly bad news for everybody, not only for Europe, not only for China, but also for the United States. You cannot build more prosperity and more growth on the basis of a trade war between the two superpowers in the world. I hope also that there won't be a trade war between the United States and Europe. Being hit by American sanctions, like it is the case now for France, for the Valleyards, for instance, is clearly not good news for the quality of the relationship between the United States and Europe, and especially France. So Bruno Le Maire there is saying a limited deal could be within the side, but I think the messaging was quite interesting at the very start. He's talking about that uncertainty persisting because of the, the trade fight that's been waged between the two countries. The other context here, as he then swiftly moved on to the European context, is that uh, he hopes there's not going to be any tariffs against European member countries. And if you think about where we're at so far, about 11 billion euros in tariffs likely to hit in 2020 in retaliation for Airbus subsidies, he hopes that's probably going to be as uh, bad as it gets. Don't forget there was a, a silence really from the White House a couple of weeks ago about whether there would be tariffs for some of those German autos and other European products. So what happens in 2020 is still a big question as we come up to the presidency. Also just worth noting that the remarkable change that is required in some of these countries, structural reform, we've been talking about that for a long time here in Europe. When you think about the challenges on the ground here in France, the protesters, uh, they still continue the yellow vest protests. At the same time, the government was forced to loosen the purse strings here to offset some of those protests are spending about 10 billion euros in the form of tax cuts this year and there's more next year. Think about how the government's been able to do that. Some of it has come through from the benefit, the wins from negative interest rates. So uh, against this backdrop of global uncertainty forcing central banks to cut further into negative territory, there has been a benefit and that the government's been able to tap into that saving and send it back to the people in the form of tax cuts. What happens when we do have better growth and when we're at the end of the road on the negative rates? Well, there seems to be further pushback again from Bruno Le Maire in my conversation that it's up to the Germans and the Netherlands, those that can spend to loosen the, loosen the purse strings. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.